Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and we're absolutely delighted you're with us today as we talk about some of the issues that face Christians in the world that we live in. We're interested in environmental stewardship, racial relations, faith and business, and much more. Today our topic is environmental stewardship. So let's think about what it means to be stewards of God's good creation. We also ask that you visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org. We have many audio and video uh, selections available there from past conferences. Uh, you can visit there at hillcountryinstitute.org or call 512-680-7993 for additional information. We also ask that you consider supporting this program so that we can continue on the air. Radio stations like to be paid. So now, let's welcome our special guest, U.S. Representative Bob Inglis, who represented the 4th District of South Carolina from 1993 to 1998 and from 2005 to 2010. Congressman Bob Inglis, welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live. Thanks for having me. Uh, Bob, uh, here at the start of this uh, segment, why don't you tell us again about your organization, uh, just in case somebody's just joined us. Uh, we are uh, fascinated with how new organizations start. Uh, it's, it's an entrepreneurial thing. And, and when you've got somebody that's been a lawyer and a congressman and they feel led to start an organization, there's just got to be a good story there, doesn't there? Yeah. So we're we're republician.org. We're conservatives reaching conservatives on climate change. And um, I started this uh, uh, effort as I uh, got tossed out of Congress in 2010. And um, at that point, a foundation came to me and said, you know, Inglis, you're an unusual zoo animal. You're an actual conservative. Um, and as you heard me say earlier, you know, 93 American Conservative Union rating, 100% Christian Coalition, 100% National Right to Life, A with the NRA, zero with the Americans for Democratic Action, and 23 by some mistake with the AFL-CIO. Um, i really hoping for zero. Uh, uh, they said, an actual conservative who says climate change is real. Will you speak and write for the proposition? And and that's what I've been doing ever since. And now it's a, it's a, a team of six of us that uh, facilitates a community that by the end of this year, we're projecting to be about 10,000 people who are uh, conservatives uh, that are rising to the competition of ideas on climate change to say, you know what, we've got something to offer. We're conservatives. We believe in the power of free enterprise. We know that the problem is the problem of economics. Fix the economics and the free enterprise system will deliver innovations faster than government regulations or mandates or fickle tax incentives could ever imagine. And so that's what we travel the country and in key places uh, to make that case. And one of the key places is the state of Texas, um, where uh, we think uh, energy innovation is going to come from and uh, where we think uh, a state like Texas can help the rest of the country find a solution to climate change. Well, you know, Texas is known as an oil and gas state, but we're also, uh, I'm very proud to say, the largest producer of wind energy among the 50 states. And uh, we, yeah. and you, you, you probably, uh, our audience has probably some familiarity with the electricity grid 
there are three grids in the United States. There's the West Grid, the East Grid, and the Texas Grid. And Texas made a $4.5 billion investment in its grid so that we could bring the wind energy from West Texas to the cities. So, you know, we're we're part of it. And uh, that that doesn't mean that we're not producing huge amounts of oil and gas still. But I think there's a recognition. There's a, a lot of entrepreneurs here. Uh, we have a, an or, uh, organization called the Texas Renewable Energy Industry Alliance. And people who are trying to do these new things and doing research and trying to make money at it uh, are part of that. So Texas is a part of, of the solution. And uh, I'm glad to say that. Glad, glad that I can say that. And I want to encourage. Oh, it, it, yeah. it's, it's so true because, uh, you know, uh, my friend, and he is my friend, George W. Bush, when he was governor of Texas, um, put a guy named Pat Wood in charge of that, that project you're talking about there that was later built out by a guy named Brett Perlman and um, and other people as well. And they really have done amazing things in Texas. And if that, if that particular project could be replicated across America, uh, it, it'd be pretty amazing. Um, because that's what it's all about. What, what the goal there was to make it so that the consumer sees the actual cost of electricity and uh, see if this uh, matches, you think, Larry, with uh, sort of a biblical uh, responsibility ethic. You know, my view mm-hmm. is that in the salad bar of life, take what you want, but pay for what you take. Um, because if you have that governor on your appetite, in other words, the knowledge that at the end of the salad bar, you're going to have to pay based on what you've taken, then you moderate what you take. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if you have no responsibility and you can just check out at the end of the salad bar, well, then if you got that free rider problem, in other words, people not paying what they've taken from the salad bar, well, pretty soon the, the restaurant tour is going to have just iceberg lettuce and Thousand Island dressing <laughs> because that's all he or she can afford to put on the salad bar. Um, but if you if everybody's paying for the, you know, the turkey they take and the ham, sliced ham that they take and the cheese they take from the salad bar, then that restaurant tour can keep that replenished and people can have a nice salad. But you got to pay for what you take in life. You, you can't, and, and that's that's that causes us to individually govern ourselves, um, and and that's the accountability we're looking for in the climate space. Is just make us all accountable. Yes. Give us the actual cost of electricity. That's what that energy transformation was that Governor Bush started in Texas, that Pat Wood and Brett Perlman and others implemented. That's what it's all about. And the results have been terrific. Absolutely. It needs to be replicated around the country. Yes. And, you know, that brings that, that really brings up another issue. When you when you think of the salad bar, uh, that salad bar should go to the next generation uh, fully equipped. And you mentioned earlier that you you went to Congress to fight those three hundred billion dollar deficits, which really sound attractive now because uh the yeah. Ma- <laughs> the ma- yeah but the massive national debt that we're passing on and unfunded pension liabilities at, at, at every level from city to state to national government uh combined with the the not paying full cost for 
particularly coal-produced energy and for transportation, uh, that's leaving a real mess for the next generation. You know, I mean, I'm a baby boomer age person, and uh, and I and I, if you're a millennial or, or Gen Z person listening, you know, I apologize. I mean, I, I really regret what we're leaving you. And what we're talking about here is a recognition of those kinds of issues and, and hopefully ways that we can have an impact to make them better. Aren't we, Bob? Yeah, and I really shouldn't be laughing about that $300 billion deficit as it was. Now, in the year 2019, the deficit is projected in in the United States to be $1 trillion. There's a big difference between $300 billion and $1 trillion. It's $700 billion. Yeah. That's a lot of money. I mean, to, to ask future generations to pay back, it's as though... We really are the irresponsible people that are on the credit card. And when we check out, we plan on leaving that bill to our children and grandchildren. And it's uh, and so we're doing that fiscally, but we're also doing it environmentally because we are, uh, you know, July 2019 was the hottest year on record for the planet Earth. Hmm. And if people look that up, they're going to see, well, it was a teeny little increase. It's like 0.01 degrees C or something like that. It's a, it seems small, but you consider the entirety of the Earth and it rising by that much, the energy that had to be trapped to create that kind of rise worldwide is an enormous release of energy enormous trapping of heat. And so that's just like the deficit and the debt that we're piling up irresponsibly for our children and grandchildren. We're doing the same to them in the energy deficit or the energy uh, budget we've got, the, the, the space within the trash dump of the sky. There's only so much space, stuff you can put up there before you really trash the place. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're in the business right now of just willy-nilly trashing it. Um, yeah. And it's our, it's our children, grandchildren are going to pay it. And it's something very wrong about that, you know? <laughs> so, oh, absolutely. Yeah, one, one way to think of it, um, I don't know if this, this fits your thinking, but the atmosphere is a, an important blanket for the planet. And if it wasn't for that, we'd, we would be frozen. And so there's some sun rays that should go off. But if, if, if this blanket gets more wool in it, and wool being carbon dioxide and methane and water vapor, the blanket becomes stronger and the planet becomes hotter. And that's, that's basically what we're doing, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. And that's, that's a wonderful metaphor that, uh, that my friend Catherine Hayhoe, uh, Texas uh, tech uh, climate scientist, uh, uses. She says, you know, one electric blanket in the winter you're comfortable, two or three, you start sweating because, uh, you know, it's just too much heat. Yes. And that's what, the way God designed this planet is it's got, uh, it's got this wonderful layer of greenhouse gases that moderates our temperature, it keeps us sort of moist and moderated in temperature. Now, people, you know, at the North Pole or South Pole might not feel so moderate um, because it's pretty cold in those places. But, mm-hmm. but Around the globe, there are places, many places, that are very livable and glorious. And that's the way it was designed to be. But you increase that blanket 
you you add more and more blankets, end up hot, and um, and things start happening that are not good, um, you know. And so, uh, weather becomes very much more unpredictable, um, and so that's that's what's happening to us. Sure. Well, and the the warming planet leads to a warming ocean, and a warming ocean is bigger than a cooler ocean, and we end up with things like high tide flooding in over 20 locations in the United States. Places like Bangladesh are losing farmland because the ocean is getting on good farmland and depositing salt, and it's, it's, it's ruining it. Other good farmland in places like El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala are, are, are no longer arable because they're too hot and there's drought. So, and we're, you know, permafrost is melting in Alaska and we're having to move villages. Sea level rise is making us move, or make not us, but making villagers in the South Pacific move. We've got a couple of towns in Louisiana that are going to have to move. So the, the ramifications of what's happening are, are just so substantial uh, that we, we really need to do something to have an impact, don't we? Yeah, and, you know, 10 years ago, which is when I uh, basically was encountering the buzzsaw of saying what you just said at a time when you weren't supposed to say it as a Republican uh, because we were in the midst of the Great Recession and we just didn't want to talk about climate change because we were all focused on the immediate hemorrhaging that we were experiencing by you know, the Great Recession rather than the slow-growing cancer of climate change. So back then, you didn't want to say those things and uh, had the problem of saying them. Um, but now we're all sort of seeing it, and it's happening, and it's really hard to deny. Um, and so the impacts are coming right close to us now, and maybe that will cause us to say, okay, you know, now we, we, we understand. we got to do something about this. And who's going to do something about it? Well, the only country in the world that's capable of solving this is the United States. We are the indispensable partner in the, in, 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 in the indispensable nation. And so um, this, and, and, you know, so to, to illustrate how those impacts are coming closer, Texas is on the front lines of some of these things, particularly where you're talking about the loss of arable land in uh, Latin America, is some of the uh, some of the uh, immigrants that we're seeing are actually climate refugees. They're people that are moving away from farms that can't produce anymore. They have no hope of producing, and so they're moving. Well. You also mentioned Bangladesh and places like that. Well, just imagine if, as sea level rises, those people start picking up and moving, and some of their neighbors don't like them, <laughs> and so they get to those they they move in next door to the neighbor that's not liking them. Some of those are nuclear armed states, and that's why the military. Um, at a lot of bases in Texas are concerned about exactly this problem is mass migration creating instability in the world that we're going to have to respond to. So all of this becomes, it, it's not far away. Back in 2010, when I was encountering this buzzsaw, as I said, um, it seemed a long way away. But now that we've had Hurricane Harvey, now that we've had all kinds of uh, problems with drought and flooding and 
issues that the climate science is pretty accurately predicting, um, and you get these mass migration possibilities, it's all coming real close to us. And now we're realizing, oh, really, we need to solve this. And who's going to solve it? Well, the people are going to solve it, the free enterprise system and innovation. And, and a lot of that's going to come, especially in energy, from places in Texas. Yes. Well, Bob, at, at one time in one of your talks, you said God is sovereign, but we're responsible. So what does, what does that mean today? What, what is real-life action that we can take? What, what solutions should Christians and political conservatives be advocating? Yeah, it's so important, I think, to, to, to make that point. That, you know, these two things are true. God is sovereign. I believe that very deeply. Uh, I stake my whole life on it. Um, uh, and I'm also responsible. Now, you can't resolve those two things. Sure. Yeah, they're irreconcilable. Well, there's been a lot of ink spilt on that issue over the years, hasn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right Christ ahead. is yeah. divine. He's also human. You can't resolve, you can't reconcile those two things. You hold them in tension. And so, so if I, if God is sovereign and yet I'm responsible, then it means somehow that I've got to rise to stewardship, and uh, not in a panic, not like it's all up to me. Uh, it's not all up to me. Um, I, mean, I got to trust God, but and it's a good trust. Uh, but uh, and He's faithful. But it's also true that He expects us to be responsible. <laughs> you know, it's so like back to that uh, example I was given of the stream. You know, you and I are putting stuff in the stream that's killing our neighbor's cattle. We could say to our neighbor, "Inshallah, if God wills it, He could clean up our effluent before it kills your cattle." Sure. Um, and I hope everybody out there recoils and says, no, that could not be the way it is. English. That is not what God does. He does not say that. But it is true that he who turned water into wine could clean up our affluent before it kills our neighbor's cows. He could. Mm-hmm. But it's not the way he usually acts. The way he usually acts is he says, hey, Larry, Bob, clean up your affluent from your plant. You can't do that to your neighbor. It's against my rules. I am the guy that gets to make the rules. I am God. And I'm telling you, you can't do on your property something that harms you, your neighbor's property or person. Clean up your act. And so, so that's, what we, that's what we're saying about climate is just make us all accountable. Make us all responsible. Let us see the true cost of energy, just like Texas is seeing it because of those uh, innovations we were just talking about. And then... I'll run my dishwasher at night, not in peak power times. Um, And I'll make it so that the base power load, which is less emissions, is running rather than the peaking load, uh, which has emissions. Mm -hmm. And so so make us accountable, and all of us will, in in the liberty of enlightened self-interest, will govern ourselves. And we won't need regulations to tell us what to do. We'll just see the true cost. And most of us figure out how to save on those costs. Sure. You've, uh, you've thought a lot about a um, carbon tax. What are some important points to think about in that particular uh, area of uh, legislation? The most important point, I think, is to make it revenue neutral and border adjustable. And what that means, as the government speak, both of those things are. Revenue neutral means 
if we're going to put on a carbon tax, we're going to untax people somewhere else. So there's no growth of government. So that we at republician.org are not into some sort of grow the government scheme. In fact, we want to. We want. We think there's a slight shrinking we can get a government here, because uh, you can repeal some Clean Air Act regulations that would become redundant by, by the placing of a price on carbon emissions. Uh, not the whole EPA, but just a small part of it. So it's a slight smaller government. But anyway, definitely not a larger one. We don't want to grow the government here. So if you're going to put on a carbon tax, you got to cut taxes somewhere else, or dividend all the money back to the people that comes from the carbon tax. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is you got to make it border adjustable. That means you apply the tax on imports as they come through our ports. So there's something coming through the port of Houston. We would attach our carbon tax to those Chinese goods. The Chinese would say, oh, that violates the World Trade Organization and uh, is impermissible under GATT rules. And so we are suing you in the World Trade Organization. We think they lose that case based on precedence in the chemical industry. And then after they've lost, it's, it becomes in their interest to, do, to impose the same price on carbon dioxide in China that we've got here. Reason, those goods coming through the Port of Houston are being taxed, but with an American tax that's ending up in Washington. If they had imposed a tax in China, the tax money would have ended up in Beijing, and those goods would have come through the port of Houston without any adjustment, border adjustment, to impose our carbon tax. They've already collected a tax on those goods. Mm-hmm. Sure. So 24 hours later, China would have the same price on carbon dioxide that we have. And then the whole world would follow. Because if you're doing business anywhere in the world, you're doing business with America and China. So the whole world would see the true cost of energy at that point, just like Texas is seeing it because of that uh, that, that change we were describing earlier. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, you have, you have people around the world figuring out, I want a more efficient dishwasher. I want a better solar panel. I want a better battery to store that stuff. I want that electric car. And, and it changes. Now, now that I just described that last thing, a big change for Texas because that affects oil and gas. But that change is coming. And so at that point, you start reforming natural gas into hydrogen, and you try to do hydrogen fuel cells as essentially a battery. And you try to, uh, uh, to, try to use that as an innovative technique. To keep using some of the material, but you're using it in a different way that produces water vapor as the only emission from that fuel cell. That's quite a change. Yeah, it's a huge change. And, of course, some people listening probably think, well, this is just too much change. This is so overwhelming. And it is. But consider the change that all of us have experienced with cell phones. And and the Internet. I mean, I remember standing in the Charlotte airport in about 1995, and a guy asked me, what's your email address? And so I was so proud. I took out my card, and I said, got it right here, right? I got some brand-new cards. See right there. It says right there. And he looked at it. He said, that's a website, not an email address. 
And I said, I'm not stupid, but I said that my words to him in the Charlotte airport, 1995, are, what's the difference? I didn't know the difference between a website and an email address. Yeah. But not many people did. I mean, it wasn't, I'm stupid. It's that it's changed that much. Um, and good things have come. Terrible things have come with it, too. I mean, uh, look at the impact of social media on, on some terrible things. But also good things have come. Um, but, I mean, that's just what I'm saying is that this is a big change. Any listener is saying what you're talking about there, English, is a huge change to the energy sector. And I would say you are exactly right. It is huge. But consider AT&T asking McKinsey, the consulting firm, to tell them how many cell phones would be in service at the year Y2K when they were asked in the mid-'80s. McKinsey thought about it and said the answer, 800,000. Well, the only problem for McKinsey was there were 800,000 cell phones going (laughs) into service every three days as Y2K (laughs) rolled around. Yeah, and they just missed it. And right? McKinsey's and so, a great firm, one of the best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and sure. so you don't want to miss this energy innovation. And I always just uh, I've been, you know, I've had a number of opportunities to be in uh, Houston, for example, where they plan on not missing this. They plan on leading this energy innovation, and it's pretty exciting. That's great. Pretty exciting opportunities if you don't just hold on to just what we got. Don't hold on to whale oil when you can convert to coal. Don't hold on to coal when you can convert to natural gas. Don't hold on to natural gas when you can hold on to fuel cells. Well, it's just like the former president of uh, Texas A&M said on D-Day, Rangers lead the way. Well, Texas entrepreneurs often lead the way, so I hope we can. Bob, we're running out of time. Let's one more time tell people how to get in touch with your organization and how to be part of your community. Yes, we're republicen.org. And if you find us at that uh, address on the web, uh, join us, because what we need is we need for elected conservatives to see that there are conservatives out there who want free enterprise action on climate change. And so we're building that community of support. So free enterprise action on climate change, Christians as steward of the environment. These are your values, aren't they? Yes, it's uh, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to talk with you, Larry, because it's, uh, it's neat to see what you're doing at uh, Hill Country Institute, and uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Thank you, Bob. It's great to see what you're doing. Uh, Godspeed and all the best. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for joining us for Hill Country Institute Live today. Please consider a gift to support this ministry and this radio program. You can donate at hillcountryinstitute.org or by calling 512-680-7993. That's 512-680-7993. And at hillcountryinstitute.org, you'll also find other programs in our audio and video from our past conferences. You can also listen to our program on your podcast as Hill Country Institute Live. Thank you again, and share the heart and mind of Jesus Christ wherever you go. 